Welcome to The Spin Cycle. I'm Maggie Sarachek. And I'm Abby Greenberg. And together we are the Anxiety Sisters. show. Today's conversation is with Dr. Robert C. Smith, a university distinguished professor of medicine and psychiatry at Michigan State University. Since 1985, Dr. Smith has been a pioneer in healthcare communication. In fact, he literally wrote the textbook on patient-centered interviewing. He is also an outspoken proponent of changing the way we practice mental health care in this country, and for that, we are so grateful. Dr. Smith regularly blogs for Psychology Today has been featured on the Today Show and has been quoted in the Times of New York, the Wall Street Journal, Time, Newsweek, the LA Times, and many other media outlets. He is one busy guy, and we are so lucky to have him with us today. Hi, Dr. Smith. Welcome to our show. Oh, hi, Abby and Maggie. Good to be here. Oh, we're so happy to have you. You recently wrote a really important blog called How We Interfere With Our Own Mental Health Care in which you point out how destructive mental health stigma is. And so we we just wanted to ask you a few questions about that. How did stigma around mental health start? Like what are are some of the negative consequences and how do we work to remedy this personally and professionally? Yeah, I mean, stigma around mental health issues is like stigma towards many other things, race or religion, what have you, but people have largely unconscious attitudes toward other people. And in this instance, we're talking about toward people with mental illness. Mental illness patients have unfortunately for many, many years been viewed as being too subjective, unstable, too emotional, and Indeed, in our society, there's a tendency for us to ignore our own emotions, suppress our own emotions, for us all to be objective and uh, straightforward with what's in front of us, avoiding the emotional. And so in our own unconscious, it's as though we are projecting out onto other people some of our own insecurities about being subjective or unstable. And so it becomes a a major problem in the mental health field is the stigma that's attached to this. Uh, Nora Volkow, the head of uh, NIDA, the National Institute for Drug Abuse, uh, recently commented on this and just how difficult it makes uh, treatment. Oftentimes, the stigma itself is more disabling than the mental disorder itself that is being stigmatized. Just for example, say someone is depressed and others know about it and they stigmatize them then as a mental patient. Well, the stigma itself is more problematic than the depression. People get excluded, they can't get jobs, they don't get care. And it becomes a kind of a self-perpetuating problem. 
you asked about treatment, what you can do about this. Probably the most fundamental thing at an individual level is for each of us to try to see others, be it someone in mental health or of a different race, different sexual orientation, but is to try to see others as individuals for their own attributes, rather than bringing to it this preconceived notion of what that person must be like. In that context, it helps to, it's what in the whole area is called self-awareness or personal awareness. And meditation is one of the things, mindfulness meditation in particular. And it helps us bring these unconscious feelings, say that a mental health person is weak or an alcoholic is a bad person. It helps us just bring those to the surface of our own consciousness. And oftentimes, once we simply become conscious and saying, oh, hey, I'm feeling negative toward that person because they've got a mental disorder. You're raising it to your own consciousness. And if you can acknowledge that, you recognize, well, I need to get to know that person better before I really act negatively in some way. In so doing, that is making it conscious, one at least makes the conscious decision, am I going to react to this person by dismissing them? Or now that I'm aware of how I'm reacting, do I want to react to them in a different way? And that probably is the most effective on an individual level. It has to do just with self-awareness processing and meditation can help this. I was I was wondering what you think of, you know, how medicine is very big into labeling, obviously, for diagnostic purposes. I was wondering what you think that contributes to stigma. Yeah, the label, I mean, terms like, uh, you know, schizophrenic, and it gets into mm-hmm. the common language, somebody's acting schizo or something like this. And this, this labeling, I don't know that's so much the fault of the medical profession, I mean, in some sense, you have to call it something to address it, but it it spills over into society and, and people pick it up and use it in untoward uh, ways. Um, I'm not sure I'm answering your question. No, that. no, that does make some sense. Yeah, no, you absolutely did answer the question. Thank you. No, it makes, I think also that when I was a teenager and experiencing depression for the first time, and I'm a social worker, my mom was a social worker, but my mom really didn't want to see what I was experiencing as depression. And I think now I think it's because she would have felt responsible, you know, somehow for it. we're, We're such a society where like, there's a everything, you know, even with physical quote unquote illness. Now it's like, there's a, Everyone has a blame, like, oh, you have heart disease, you didn't eat right, you got cancer, you didn't do this. And but especially yep. with mental health issues, I think yep. like, you know, so people are even to the people closest to us, we don't want to see it because we don't want to sort of blame ourselves or no, I think so. And in fact, with children, it, it's been found that, for example, parents. I don't know, I think that I can't remember the exact numbers, but it's something like a fourth or a third of parents when they were in, was investigated would not want their own healthy youngster playing with another youngster 
who had a mental disorder. And so it's that, it's that stigma that, that goes with that. I mean, it's a powerful thing. Mm -hmm. And parents, as you're saying, may not want others to know it because it makes them, I guess, feel A, responsible, B, themselves stigmatized somehow. And it's a, it's a difficult thing. And an overarching example of the terribly adverse effect that has come about because of the long-term mind-body split. Mm -hmm. yes. That has been going on since the 17th century. And this is, I'm reviewing much of this right now as part of this book I'm writing, but it's been going on since then. And it, it came out early on in the 17th century, Descartes and all of those sorts of people, that bodily functions and how they work, in other words, how your heart works, how your vision yeah. works, and so on. That stuff was all the province of medicine and science. There's more science at the time than medicine. And that alternatively, mind issues were issues relating to the soul. At the time, as the main and scientific focus of all science back then was human anatomy. And the church at the time, because science was improving and improving, they wanted to dissect human bodies. They finally agreed that it was okay for the scientists to dissect human bodies, except they had one proviso, don't touch the head. And in fact, they required, grisly as it sounds, that the head be decapitated and handed over physically to the church authorities before the dissection of the rest of the body could take place. And so it, it was the mind and the soul that were the church's province. Mm. Oh, interesting. And the body, the physical body, was left to the scientists. Well, medicine just took off like gangbusters over the next several centuries from, from that point, but all focused on the body. It was very little to do with mental disorders or personal or emotional things. And in fact, medicine at its inception as a science clinically, and it was around the so early 1800s in France, but at the time it was conceptualized, the mind was held off yet to the church, and it was simply focused on the body. And that has carried over to the present day. And so it has unfortunately adopted this mind-body split so that that's why medicine today focuses primarily yet on diseases and they do address mental disorders, but not nearly in proportion to what they should be. One half of all of us will have a mental disorder sometime in our lives. And so they're extraordinarily common, mental disorders. In fact, they're more common than heart disease and cancer combined. The problem is medicine does not train its physicians to take care of mental health problems. Now you may say, well, what about psychiatry? Psychiatrists have long, long been in short supply. They have very short supply. Yes, we, we do know supply. that because yeah. we know that we hear from anxiety sisters all the time that yep. 
they they live in places where they can't find a psychiatrist within oh, a couple of hours. There are um, studies studies that show that ninety five percent of U.S. counties are deficient in psychiatry. Fifty percent, I think it is, have none. Uh, they're concentrated yeah. in the Northeast is where they all are. Right. And, and even then, people people sometimes find they can't afford them because no. they're not covered the same way. Yeah. Even no, if they have insurance. They take care of only 15% of all major mental disorders. Primary care physicians take care of all the rest, 85%. And primary care physicians have not been trained to do this. And that's why mental health care is so poor in this country. We've definitely seen that in the experience of so many anxiety sisters, including ourselves, but we've also seen that where most people are getting, if they're getting medication, they're getting it from their internists, sometimes their gynecologists. Right. Right, and you know, the bad news about that, it's been found that most people who are depressed do not receive medications. And most people who receive antidepressant medications are not depressed. And this is- We believe it. It is not the doctor's fault. Mm -hmm. They are doing the blooming best they can. And God bless them because they at least are recognizing a few of the problems and responding and just doing the best they can. Right. It's like what they're doing with primary care doctors and mental health is like sending someone who is just out of medical school to go do the next cardiopulmonary bypass surgery. They're just not trained for it. And it's, that's probably a bad example, but. There, there's no mental health rotation for doctors? I'll give you the numbers on it. The average mental health training through medical school is 5.1 weeks during, usually during the third year of medical school on an inpatient psychiatric ward where they see patient, mental health patients who are very unlike the mental health patients they'll see when they graduate. Now, there are other lectures and people allude to it and they'll have a lecture on substance abuse and they'll have a lecture on opioids and on alcoholism, but the only supervised clinical experience they get is that 5.1 weeks in the third year. In residencies, it is even worse. For the most part, residencies do next to nothing. The average amount of time spent in three years of an internal medicine residency is 17 hours per year in lectures at noon conferences. And people don't always attend them. They leave early and come late and so on. And then it's not clinical experience. It's just a lecture. And so the sum total, the percentage spent on supervised mental health care is approximately 2% of total teaching time. 50% of all people will have a mental disorder. Mental disorders are more common than heart disease and cancer combined. That is an even worse statistic than I thought. I had a social work professor when I was in social work school. Her name was Dr. Terry Mizrahi. 
And one of the things she always would talk about is that she had done some studies with medical students and young doctors, and she would sort of ask them questions about processing their own emotions, about what they were seeing or what they were feeling. And she would talk time and time again how they said, wow, like nobody in all our years has ever asked us how we are feeling. That's right. And she was saying like most of them did not have the vocabulary to really express themselves on emotional terms. That's right. So Dr. Smith, I've read some of your work and you talk a lot about a humanistic approach to medicine. Exactly. And the humanistic approach to medicine involves addressing your and my personal, that is our psychological and our social dimensions, or that is our relationships. And so medicine does not address that. Medicine is very non-humanistic insofar as it addresses just physical disease problems. And you, you see this even today. Someone goes to the doctor and you go in, you know, say I've got a headache and it you know, I'm worried about I'm going to lose my job or something. The doctor just says, where's the headache? They forget about the job. The humanistic doctor would address the, the job and the concerns about that, but they're not taught to do that. Right. I've been told also by a friend of mine who's a doctor and other doctors have told me this too, that they were really discouraged from expressing their emotions. You know, one of my friends was telling me a story of when something very sad happened and he started to cry. And one of the older doctors came up to him and said, you know, you're not going to be able to survive if you do that. Like, stop crying. You know, that sounds a really powerful message to doctors. Oh, it does. Yeah. I was told several times, and everybody else has been too, because they all tell me about it. Don't get too close to the patient, by which they meant don't address their emotional and personal things, much less your own. It will ruin your objectivity. Right. Doctors certainly have reaction to people and the plight and the profound suffering that they're exposed to, and yet they're advised, don't get involved in that humanistic, psychosocial part of their lives. Just stay focused on the physical disease. And that's the repeated message. And just Mm. like you said, in the 17th century, it sounds like young doctors are encouraged to remove the heads. So we very much agree with you. Um, I wanted to tell our audience, you and your colleague were the first to behaviorally define the patient-centered interview as a model that can be systematically taught and studied. In fact, you wrote the textbook on that topic that's still used. What is patient-centered interviewing? Let me backtrack just a second. I'll get back to that. It will help inform that question. We've talked about how the mind-body split occurred in the 17th century, and it's the cause of many of these problems today. There is a new theory of medicine called the biopsychosocial model. And this is as opposed to the old mind-body split, which was called the biomedical model. And so the biopsychosocial model keeps the focus on disease, but adds to it the patient's psychological and social being in an integrated way. That was identified by George Engel 
the University of Rochester in 1977. And in fact, I did my fellowship there under him. It was a real privilege. He's a wonderful man. And so the new way of medicine, the biopsychosocial way, says that we should have, in addition to biological or disease information about every patient, we should have psychological and social information that is pertinent. It is there that patient-centered interviewing comes in because the biopsychosocial model in and of itself doesn't tell you how to get biopsychosocial information. It just tells you that you should. The patient-centered interview tells you how to obtain that information, and it contrasts to the old, what's called doctor-centered interview. The patient-centered interview does what it says. It allows the patient to be heard and to express their own interests, concerns, requests. It entails things, you're in communication and and in social work, you've heard these before, but open-ended questions, Mm -hmm. emotion-seeking questions. How does that make you feel? What I call empathy, empathic responses. Mm -hmm. And we teach these. For, For example, a patient comes in with, we'll say, a backache, and they're worried about being out of work. In the patient-centered interview, one starts with the physical. We don't want to omit disease. And so tell me more about the backache. And you listen to them for probably a minute or so, remembering that you're going to be doctor-centered later on and can pin down anything you miss. And then you go from that physical story to the personal story. So how is this affecting your life? Well, I'm out of work. I don't have money. My wife is sick and she can't work and so on and so forth. And you hear the patient's personal story. Then you find the emotional component of that, which is something to the effect of, so how does that make you feel? I feel angry. I feel depressed. I'm out of a job and whatever the emotion might be. And we then develop that. Well, tell me more about feeling angry. Then what we call the empathic skills are used, and they are recalled by the mnemonic nurse, N-U-R-S, which goes something like this. So you're angry, that's naming it, N, I can understand that. That's the you understanding. You've been through a lot. Thanks for telling me about it. That's the respect statement, the R. Let's work on that together and see what we can work out. That's the S or support statement. And so we teach our residents and students to nurse the emotion. N-U-R-S is incomplete, isn't it? You want to fill in that E to fill out the word nurse. E stands for the empathic skills. And particularly in this day and age, who is more empathic than most nurses you have known? And so it's a, it's a nice mnemonic to help remember it. Great. Now, how widely is this being used in medical schools? Um, it, this is in our textbook. It's in that interviewing textbook. And it's used quite widely in this country and abroad. Oh, that's great. Part of the challenge I know for many doctors too, and many patients is less of us have a relationship with, you know, our primary care doctor 
for many years than we used to because of insurance or other types of issues. Yep. That's a sad problem. And yet one yeah. more part of this mind-body split is that there are fewer and fewer primary care physicians today who would look into the entire being of the patient, even notwithstanding that they're not trained, but they still get the big picture of the patient. There are more specialists today than there are primary care physicians, and primary care physicians are the fastest dwindling group in mm -hmm. medicine. Doctors, by and large, are not bad people. Uh, they come across me that way in the newspapers and TV often portray it that way for being insensitive, but they just haven't been trained. Many of them just intuitively, once you kind of get through the veneer, the armor that prevents that, once you get through that, they can be quite helpful. When I went to medical school, there were 120 of us in a class, there were two women. Today, there are about 50% women and maybe maybe a little more anymore. And the advent of women in the prominent roles in medicine has been a tremendous boon in this psychosocial dimension. Women are just, for the most part, compared to men, are much better at, at these more humane, humanistic dimensions. Well, we're so women are socialized to be connectors. Exactly. Also, have a list of things you want to talk about to the doctor written out and then review them in the waiting room. Mags and I have a psychiatrist checklist that we, we call it questions for your prescriber that yep. we give out to everybody. We say, take this with you so that if your doctor or your psychiatrist says to you, I want to put you on Prozac, you, you can ask intelligent questions that are going to help you understand things. So we are, right. we are big proponents of being prepared and writing things down ahead of time, but also recognizing that communication is, it's a feedback loop. So you yep. have to be able to express your own needs and be aware that doctors are human beings and some yeah. of them might not be skilled in the communication field. Most human beings aren't. I meant to mention this earlier, but when you said you're in communication, it reminded me of it. What we're teaching doctors to do and how you teach them to be humanistic and nurse and all these things I mentioned, this is nothing unique to medicine. These are just fundamental interpersonal skills that you've mm -hmm. learned in communication. I mean, this is not nuclear physics, what needs to be done. Right. I've always felt that medical schools need to pay more attention to communication. Yeah. And they are doing better. I, I'd have to say, when I went to medical school, we had nothing on it. But since, uh, since, since about the 70s and 80s, it's gotten progressively better. Most medical schools now teach something about medical interviewing. I think there may be one or two of the 150 some that don't, but I think almost all of them do anymore. So it, it's coming, but very slowly. And communication programs are now including healthcare communication yep, as part of exactly. offerings, which didn't exist when I was in school. In fact, I at Michigan State have worked with our Department of Communication extensively. Mm, that's interesting. Great. Great. Yeah. Tell you, you teased us before. Tell us a little about your latest book project. Um, the title of it is, Has Medicine Lost Its Mind? And <laughs> it has to do with some of the stuff we're talking about here today. But basically, it's saying that medicine has lost its mind in the 
to 17th century, just as we were talking, in the mind-body split. And it goes into the downsides of that first. I mean, even though the suicidal patients, about half of them see their doctor in the month before they commit suicide. But they're not trained in it. And so people with depression and so on are missed and their families go to pieces. They get divorced just because the anxiety or depression is not recognized and so on and so forth. And so it goes into all these adverse effects of it. And it then goes in and there's a chapter two on the mind-body split, how that came about. And one then on uh, obstacles like stigma. The reason I wrote the book is I've published lots of papers and books and stuff within medicine, but the public needs to become aware of this problem and how profound it is. See, this is just ingrained in the medicine subconscious. Mm -hmm. As you probably know, as well as I do, change in any institution comes usually from the outside. They Mm -hmm. they don't self-correct. It's going to need pressure from the outside, just like Rachel Carson and Silent Spring or Ralph Nader and Unsafe at Any Speed. It's only with that kind of outside pressure that gets put on a profession or institution. I think in a way the public is aware of the deficit when they go to the doctor, but not always of how that can be fixed. Do you know what I mean? Exactly. I think that's why so many people go toward holistic medicine because they're looking for someone who understands them as a whole person. Exactly. I want to say in defense of doctors in general that, I mean, obviously they're in the field, because they care about helping people. I just think yeah. that a lot of times they're discouraged from expressing that. Oh, yeah. let, me, let me give you a statistic on that. That's a wonderful point. I think it's 49% of students entering medical school are interested in psychiatry. Less than 5% are interested at graduation. And it's about 3 to 5% that go into psychiatry residencies out of medical school. This is why there's so few psychiatrists. Something is happening during those four years of medical school that's dropping that from 50% to 3%. And the medical school, by the mind-body stuff we've been talking about today, is suppressing these interests in the mental health and psychosocial dimensions. Yes. A friend of mine who's a pediatrician describes it very well like that. He said that there's a lot that's beat out of you in medical school. Yeah. Well, Dr. Thank you so much for taking time out of your super busy schedule to chat with us. We really appreciate this. And we know our listeners appreciate getting to hear from someone in the field and someone who's also a pioneer in educating young doctors. This is really, it's hopeful because it sounds as though very, 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 very slowly we're moving in the right direction. I think it is. And I think the public now needs to get more actively involved and just insist on some changes. Some announcements. Well, yeah, same old announcements. Please feel free to get in touch with us with questions or comments or ideas. No criticism, please. It's it's 2020. We're feeling vulnerable. (laughs) But you can reach us abs and mags at anxietysisters.com. That's our email. You can reach us on Facebook at Anxiety Sisters. Where else can you reach us? Instagram. Yeah. And, you know, I think we're on Pinterest. 
<laughs> I don't know if you can reach us there, though, actually. There's not oh, a real way to communicate with someone there. You can go onto our Pinterest page and take something off. And we'd really, really appreciate it if you could leave a review about our podcast wherever you're listening to it. If you liked it, let others know, because we really, really want the word to get out there to anxiety sisters and brothers all over the world that there is a fun, safe place to learn about all these mental health issues and right. to talk to really great people like Dr. Smith. He's and, he's great. And if you didn't like us, please don't leave a review. Yeah, if you don't like us, don't leave a comment. <laughs> <laughs> Just go about your day and we apologize if we offended you. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> we don't have thick skin, so don't leave a negative review. Right, right. That's it, I guess. Um, Thank you so much for joining us. And remember, anxiety sisters, don't go it alone. We did it. We really didn't, because I couldn't oh. hear you, really. Oh. I hope that that wasn't the case for the entire podcast. You've been listening to The Spin Cycle. An Anxiety Sisters production. Copyright 2021. All rights reserved.